Hey guys, welcome to the Emetophobia podcast. This is the long-awaited episode with Dr. David Yusko and Dara Lovitz. We both, or we all sat down and had a very long conversation about emetophobia, exposure therapy, anxiety. Just, we went over like every possible question I could ask. I took all of your guys' um, user-submitted questions and I asked him as many as I possibly could. Well, actually, every one I got, I asked. Um, I did keep some people anonymous. I used first names if I could just to kind of keep some... Um, other people anonymous. And uh, yeah, anyway, um, David Yusko is a doctor, psychologist, author. His website you can find him at is www.centerabt.com. And he's an exposure therapy doctor who has helped Dara Lovitz with her exposure therapy amongst a, among a lot of other people um, who have struggled with this as well. So um, this is a really, really important episode. If, if you ever listen to an episode on my podcast, this is definitely the one to listen to. It really keeps you updated on um, exposure therapy on, on, and how to actually beat emetophobia, you know, in quotations, beat emetophobia. So um, yeah, if you guys enjoyed this one, please go down below and rate and subscribe to this podcast. Leave me a good review if you'd like to, if you do enjoy it. If not, let me know. I mean, if there's something you don't like, please by all means, let me know if there's something that I can change about the podcast. You can always find me on my email at theemetophobiapodcast at gmail.com. So yeah, let's get into the podcast. Give me one second, actually. I'm going to turn my notifications off. I have a lot of vibrations here. Hold on. (laughs) There we go. Okay. We are recording, too. Sorry, we're out on on location today. I was out doing some thrifting today. So, (laughs) cool, cool. How are you guys doing today? Not bad. It's Friday. It's the afternoon. It's sunny out. It is nice, yeah. Especially in Michigan here. It's it's beautiful. Oh, are you in Michigan? Yep, yep. Whereabouts? Uh Traverse City area, up up northern oh, Michigan. Yep. I had a chance to go to Traverse City. I did a um uh an OCD workshop for a group up there. Really? That's cool. I used to come to Michigan a lot because I have a uh a job where I'm helping community mental health therapists learn how to do some therapy. And so gotcha. we work in Michigan all the time. It's a nice that's cool a nice part of the world yeah yeah no it's really it's been awesome i lived like downstate like central michigan for a long time and i moved up here like 10 ish years ago and it's been like the best decision i ever made so it's beautiful up here there's a lot of water like everywhere you go there's lakes everywhere so yeah yeah for sure um so i do have an entire like list of questions here that i've accumulated throughout the week so i figure we can just kind of go over them a little bit and just kind of touch base and um so the first one is um how to not like associate the things that you do as negatives when you have emetophobia like how um say you go to a a bar and somebody gets sick there or something how do you not associate that place as a negative for yourself later on oh that's a great question question. are these only meant for me or for both of us like are we both yeah if, if dara wants to to chime in as well no problem whatever whatever works yeah because in in our book dara talks about how um you know, different experiences would add to her library of memories of places that get kind of corrupted by 
some type of an experience that's a, a metaphobic in nature. And then she kind of describes how, well, well, that's off limits to me now. And I can't go there anymore because this happened there. Um, and so this is a great question because I do think that people will connect a negative experience with a place and then start to avoid that place because now that memory corrupts whatever it is that's there, yeah? Um, and so one way that I would like people to think about this would be um, to give themselves a chance to revisit the place where that happened so that they can replace their last memory with a new memory so that they don't always associate that place with that one event. They give themselves a chance to associate that place with more memories so that more memories begin to kind of uh, dissolve or, or dilute the scariest memory. Um, so what it'll come down to will be like trying to avoid that place less. And so if you can get a new memory of that place, it may not feel like as bad as it did when you were last there. What do you think? Like if, I were, yeah. if you were getting that advice back in the day, right. would you believe it? Or would you be like, nah, that's not gonna work? I would, no, it would definitely work. I would consider it as part of my exposure therapy because for me, it would be, I would feel anxious about going to that place. Um, I told a story in the book I think I did. There was a kid who threw up on the, on the, who got sick on the bus. I don't trigger warning. Were you, were you holding your breath and stuff? Is that what you're talking about? Um, that might I, I was, I've, I've yeah. only gotten, I mean like 30 pages into the book. I didn't have a ton of time to read it this week. So I'm trying to read as much as I can when I can. So yeah. yeah. Well, I'm not going to test you on it, but just for your listeners, <laughs> my point is like I, so he threw up on the bus and then I avoided running like when i used to run for exercise i avoided running on his street because i didn't want to pass his house and if i was in the car driving past his house i'd hold my breath like that's really irrational um but i remember like so i remember as part of my exposure therapy it's just like you i'm gonna go running by his house now and i'm gonna see that everything's gonna be fine and so but for me the point is i was still anxious about even the thought of driving by this kid's house um so so to 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 topple on what David, Dr. Yusko said, it's like, yeah, it would be part of my exposure, but yes, create new memories at this place and also train your brain that this is fine and it's okay. And um, if you feel a little, a little uncomfortable, good, go there a little more. Every time you feel uncomfortable, you're growing and you're creating new experience of this place. Um, because yeah. as Dr. Yusko said, your world becomes smaller and smaller because you're avoiding everything at some point. Mm -hmm. So um, expand your world, get a little exposure, and you'll see that that bar is still a nice place to go and they still have the best fries in town or whatever. There you go. Yeah, I've, I learned a while back, there's a show called Impact Theory on YouTube. Um, I forget the guy's name who runs it, but it's like a super in-depth show with like very high class people, I guess you could say what they are. But um, there was like a brain doctor, like a scientist who studies the brain. And he was explaining that when we make these memories, we often put them in our heads as super negative things. And then we're just constantly thinking about the negative, negative, negative. But if you can just take the memory, bring it back up in your head and then associate one positive thing with it, like that will just right there, will start to retrain your brain to think of things more positively is from what I heard at least. So it's yeah. kind of interesting stuff for sure. Definitely. Part of the creation of memory is connected to the emotion that's there. And unfortunately, negative emotions consolidate memories better than positive emotions do. Um, and so that's something to also kind of keep in mind is um, for a metaphobics, 
they are much more likely to remember negative emetophobic triggers. And so it's really important to try to undermine those memories with new experiences, just like you're saying. I think that that's- Kind of right. like the news, if you really think about it, like it's all negative all the time. You don't really remember any of the positive things they say on the news. So it's definitely something that happens, yeah. So, um, all right, let's go. This is one from a girl named Katie on Instagram. She says, I struggle with airplanes and emetophobia mostly afraid of others around me getting sick and being trapped in my seat. How can I become more comfortable with traveling and how can I prepare to deal with the anxiety? So I am a huge proponent of preparation and practice. And so the problem that I bet Katie experiences is that she doesn't want to fly very often because A, flying is hard for her and B, you're trapped inside this tin can and you can't get out. And if somebody throws up, I'm going to be in trouble. Um, so to, to try to help her get better and better at this, um, part of it is even just like watching TV shows and videos, whether they're fictional or real. Spend time with people in planes, like real people flying, YouTube videos, whatever that might be, just to begin to get a better sense of what does what can I expect to happen on a plane. The vast majority of the time, people don't throw up on planes. Does it happen? Yes, but most of the time, no. And so beginning to expect that a plane in all likelihood is gonna be a safe place, you gotta practice that um, ahead of time. And then unfortunately, you just gotta fly more. The more she flies, the more her library of experience builds, and then she begins to see, oh, I got this. I can do this. Planes aren't that bad. But it's really hard to get to that place without the preparation and the practice. If you just show up, chances are it's going to be a struggle. Yeah, yeah I, I can relate to what Katie's saying. I am an anxious traveler. Um, and still, I have to do a lot of work to like my instinct and my automatic feeling about traveling is the same thing. I feel trapped and I'm so scared someone's gonna get sick and I'm trapped when you're on a plane for a long flight, especially. So I have to prepare. Um, I always have books with me that are, you know, anti-anxiety books, like things about how to beat your anxiety. I've read almost every self-help book on the market because I've had to travel a lot in the past couple of years. And I love having an, a, a, a book like that. Um, I also like having comedy with me available. So either on my phone or a book of jokes or something to sort of calm me down. And another thing I do, especially if the plane starts shaking, which makes me a little nervous. Um, I will say I have, I, until my adulthood, I had no experience flying. I really maybe flew once from, you know, age yeah. zero to 20 something. So I didn't have enough practice or experience. Um, so something that helped me also, if the plane starts shaking, as I look at other people, it's called modeling, and I'm just watching them and everybody seems to be fine. Nobody stopped what they're doing and is clutching onto the, the armrest like I am. Everybody's like reading or asleep and they all seem so calm. So I tend to look at other people on the plane and try to do what they're doing. Like if they're not freaking out, then why should I freak out? You know, everything's fine. It's a shaky plane and that happens and everything's going to be fine. So um, I agree about preparation. You need to show up prepared. Also, you need to know that you absolutely can do it. And um, what a wonderful world that you can fly, you know, that you can get on a plane for a couple of hours and be in an entirely different environment and see nature in a different way. And it's such a wonderful thing. Um, so I definitely think people should do it. 
and again, be prepared. Yeah, that's exciting. Very good answer for sure. Um, I wanted to talk to, I was reading your book and everything, and it, it was talking about the SUDS, S-U-D-S, I believe it was. Can, can we just explain that just for a second for the listeners? Because I thought it was a really good thing to, to have in my head now as well, with like the levels and how scared you are of things and stuff. Oh, that's a great question. It's, um, it, SUDS stands for Subjective Units of Distress Scale, so S-U-D-S. And it's just a kind of a, an acronym or kind of a complicated way of trying to measure how upset or anxious or distressed you are at any given moment. Think of it like a thermometer, you know, like it's from zero to 10 or zero to a hundred. And it's a way for us to kind of gauge how distressed you are at any given time or a way that you can predict how you might feel if you go do something. So let's look at your two questions so far. We've got one who maybe went somewhere and has a memory to a person thinking about flying. So I can ask them, how difficult do you think it will be to do this? And I can ask them for their suds. And that helps me see where on the scale it would be because the higher on the suds, um, the chances are we're not ready for that until we've practiced things lower on the SUD scale. So it's basically a strategy for differentiating, like being able to, to identify levels of distress so that it's not like a light switch. Anxiety isn't always just on or off. Anxiety can be experienced at different varying levels. And what the SUD scale does is it helps people actually become more familiar with different levels versus on or off all or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Would you add to, to that? Yeah. So that's a, that's the, what the therapist uses the SUDS scale for, for the patient. Um, when I did exposure therapy, it was helpful to see my progress. Um, so for instance, if I'm watching a video and it's just stressing to me, maybe my anxiety is up around a six out of 10. So my SUDS level is at a six, but then I keep watching the video over and over again. And by the end of that, if I'm to ask what my SUDS level is, it's probably down to a two because I've seen it 20 minutes, the same thing over and over again. It's not, doesn't make me anxious anymore. Um, so that's important information for my brain to know all you have to do is keep doing the exposures and your anxiety level will go down. So it's good just to track and to keep track of your progress that way. So I found, I found the SUDS scale very useful in just knowing that this works because it's hard, you know? So it's gratifying to look at the numbers. The numbers don't lie. Um, so that's yeah. what I would use the SUD scale for as the patient. Yeah, I've been using it too lately, just in like my daily life now, since I read that, I've just been like, what do I feel right now? Like, am I, am I like a four? I'm good. Like if I'm in like a really like sketchy social situation in a store or something, I'm just like feeling a little overwhelmed at the moment. I'm just like, but I'm all right. Like everything's good. And then when I get out, I'm like, no, I'm at like a two. See, I'm good. Like everything's it was just because I was in the store. It really does make things a lot easier to kind of gauge where you're at at different moments of the day for sure. So I just wanted to go over that a little bit because I really thought that was useful for me. So I, like um, I figured it'd be useful. So um, let's go to the next one. It's uh, Kara, I believe, K-A-Y-R-A. She asked, is it okay to avoid the things she loves because she is afraid to get sick? Oh, I think that was the first question. So the first question was Kara. I'm sorry. I rewrote the question because I, I wanted to get a better uh, thing about that. Okay. This one is anonymous. Um, this one didn't have a name uh, attached to it. So um, why do emetophobic people have so many problems with weight and how can they start eating more food or combat a very restricted eating disorder? So when you're very restrictive on your eating all the time because of your emetophobia, how can we combat that? 
Yeah, this is um, this is a hard. I mean, the path through this is is hard, um, but I deeply appreciate the impact that emetophobia has on a person's ability to, to just do something that I think all of us take for granted, right? Nourishment, yeah. eating. You know, it's something I think a lot of us look forward to, a lot of us enjoy, take pleasure in. But for emetophobics, it becomes an entirely, it's a dangerous activity for emetophobics. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes one that begins to get avoided. And then all kinds of problems with weight and shape and stuff do start to emerge. And so my, my approach towards someone like this would be, let's go back to using suds, right? And can we begin to identify different foods that have different suds levels? For instance, you know, it might be peanut butter is a one, but sushi is a nine, mm -hmm. right? So in order to begin to expand a person's palate, what I would like to do is begin challenging ourselves with foods that are very low on the SUD scale in order to learn that I can actually eat these foods and nothing bad happens to me, which then means, oh, maybe I can try a food that's a two on the SUD scale. And then I learn I can do that. And then you begin to learn that you can eat more and more foods. But the only way to increase that diet is to try new stuff and the best way to try new stuff is to identify what's easier, what's a little harder, and what's really hard so that it's like running a marathon, right? You wouldn't just start by going out and saying, let's go 26, you got it. We got to mm -hmm. run the first mile before we can prepare ourselves for the full marathon. And that's what identifying different food choices does. And it helps you get stronger in your willingness to expand your food choices. Sure. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it's kind of like exposure therapy, but with food a little bit, you know, you're just exposing yourself to new things each time and making it a little bit more difficult, but not like overwhelming yourself, you know what I mean? That's the key, is not to overwhelm yourself, but also to challenge yourself, right? Like both things yeah. are true at the same time. It's can I challenge myself a little bit without overwhelming myself? Because if I overwhelm myself, I'm going to withdraw, I'm going to retreat, and I'm going to stop eating again. Yeah, yeah. Do you have anything to say on that, Dara? I was, when I heard the question, I didn't know how to answer it, and I thought your answer yeah. was brilliant. Um, yeah, it was. It was, yeah, I couldn't improve upon it. I only want to say, I guess my only comment would be, I am I am definitely an emetophobe, a recovering emetophobe. I've never had that issue, and it just shows me how um, diverse our community of emetophobes is i mean i have yeah. plenty of issues with vomit but i never um restricted my eating so um you know i i feel for that person that sounds really really tough well i've got to say too i've been on both ends of the spectrum where i've had times where i barely ate anything and i was so afraid to eat that i just was like i was 130 pounds for a long time and now i'm like about 180 and i've been eating like almost too much for a long time so now I'm finally on more of a vegan diet, a little healthier now. I'm not eating any, I was, I was very addicted to like sugar and candy for a long time where that was like my, my safe food in a way where if I was anxious or depressed, I went right to candy and I just eat a bunch of chocolate and like gummy worms and things like that. And, um, so it's just, what I did though, is exactly what you said. I started eating just smaller things. And now 
I've, I've been eating sushi every day at night for before I go to work every single night. So I, I did that to myself where I said, I'm going to eat this stuff, even though I'm afraid of it. And I, I did get like kind of nauseous one time eating sushi and it kind of scared me for years. And then my girlfriend eats a lot of sushi. So she got like, got me kind of back into it. And now I'm like, I'll just try one piece. I ate one piece of hers and now I'm like just addicted again. I'm like, I got to have sushi all the time. So it definitely is possible. Just, I wanted to say that just because it's like, I've been on both ends where I've been afraid of food. And now I'm like very excited to eat food every day. It's like one of the best parts of my day. So, all right, let's get to the next question. So Ashley asks, why have I been like this my whole life? And is there anything that causes emetophobia to happen? Oh, what a great question, Ashley. And unfortunately I don't have a great answer for her. Um, you, if you poke around online and you do some Google searches and stuff, you will see some people hypothesizing that emetophobia can, um, can grow out of traumatic experiences. Um, and for some people, I do believe that that's true. You know, some type of experience early in life that involved vomit gets, you know, stuck in memory and learning happens and then we're just kind of you're 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 stuck in this position because an event happened. Um, let's just also talk about like emetophobia falls into the class of broader class of phobias, and there are all kinds of phobias, right? Like small spaces and um, heights, and then all the animal phobias, you know, spiders, snakes, etc. Um, so when people have like spider and snake phobias and there's no history of any experience with spiders and snakes, my answer back to it is there's some degree of evolution involved with this, where spiders and snakes historically could kill you. And our bodies, our DNA holds the history of that. And so it's built into our systems to just naturally be afraid of certain things for no good reason other than evolution has taught us that and our genes carry that information forward. If we think about emetophobia, what I would what I would argue is that losing control in general is a scary experience for people and that experience of losing control can just be phobic and there's no good explanation for it other than it's built into our program. We were born with that DNA, we were born with that operating system. Um, and there might not actually be a better explanation other than it's in your blood. There you go. I, I wish I could answer that question. We just don't have the technology to really understand why we have the kind of things that we've got. And emetophobia falls squarely in that process. Do you know if they've ever done any sort of like brain scans on people with phobias like this? Have they seen like what their brain does when they see things they're afraid of? Or is there some, I'm just curious on that. Cause I've never really seen anything myself, but I've also never really looked. So it'd be kind of interesting to find that. They have. Um, and you know, the, the problem with the technology is that it's not very refined. And so what they can tell is where parts of the brain become activated, um, where it starts to use energy. You know, so when they scan your brain, they also inject you with like a, a, a glucose dye. And when, you know, glucose is energy. And so when they, let's say they then put a, a, a scary stimulus in front of you, they're scanning your brain and they're seeing what parts of your brain become activated when you become scared. Um, so they're able to tell you like 
what parts of the brain are, are activated and getting used, but they're not able to see why that part of the brain is becoming activated. And they can't answer a, a more nuanced question. Is there parts of our brain that are are learned as far and then there's also parts that we're born with like is is there like certain parts that that use more like a memory thing that we've conjured up ourselves and is there also a part that we were just born with that's like your your main everybody has the same type of brain type thing is that how that works yeah uh, like back in the back of your brain and going down into your spinal cord this is where you would most like I'm not a neuroscientist here right, but right, right. I give you my best explanation of this that's our lizard brain. That part of our brain is from, you know, literally millennia old. Up here, called our prefrontal cortex, this is the newer part of our brain. And this is the part of our brain that differentiates us from other mammals and other animals. It brings the ability to think and learn. Um, and so this part of the brain is very new. This part of the brain back here, very old. And so the, uh, the deeper, older parts of the brain, the lizard brain, is where I believe that, that DNA is stored. That's where, if you're born with this fear, that's because it's back in that part of your brain. And can we help you recover from it? Yes, that's because we're gonna engage the newer learning part of your brain that can help correct for the instinctual part of your brain. Makes a lot of sense, yeah, for sure. Never knew that. That's very interesting. All right, let's go. This next one, um, their name on Instagram is PI. It's an abbreviated PI, so I'm not sure what the name is, but um, how can I lower my anxiety re that revolves around eating food? So I think we kind of, we did touch on that, but if there's anything else you want to go into about that, that would be a little further. That'd be great. You know, the details of foods matter, you know, and so being able to, to get into like what foods and why. Is it because some foods are raw? Is it because some foods, you know, have salmonella? Is it because some foods expire? There's there's some 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 um, context. Like I don't love bubble tea. I don't love chunks in Neither, my actually. <laughs> yeah. Like, there are just certain kind of substances that don't feel as good as as others. So those different variables all matter. And getting to know what upsets you about certain foods versus other foods is important because that helps build that SUD scale. And that's what it ultimately comes back to will be practicing eating foods at varying levels of upsetness. And in order to be able to identify what foods will be more upsetting than others, those variables you have to think about, you know? So like, whatever it might be, milk as an example, milk expires. And then how do you know if the milk you're drinking is good or bad? You check the expiration date, you smell it, you do all kinds of things, but you're still not sure, um, which can be a very different reason than why you wouldn't eat sushi or eat an egg, right? Like, so the different reasons why food becomes difficult is important to be in touch with. And then those reasons help you identify harder versus easier foods. But anything that's going to be about growing and learning is going to be about challenging yourself. And it gets back to the idea of not challenging yourself too much too soon. I would, I would encourage folks to take small steps, but don't stop taking steps. Keep taking small steps until you feel confident enough to take bigger ones. 
Cool. Very good answer. Andrea here asks, what are your thoughts on neurofeedback to help overcome anxiety and fear for her daughter? So she has a younger daughter who's dealing with this and she wants to know about neurofeedback to help overcome her anxiety. So I can't say this with 100% confidence, but I can say this with a degree of confidence. We don't have any real research data to believe that neurofeedback would help treat emetophobia. Um, generalized anxiety, more kind of broad, like worry kind of stuff, there's more evidence to suggest that neurofeedback can help with anxiety, generally speaking. But the specific form of anxiety that comes from emetophobia, we don't have any information to say that neurofeedback is a good strategy for emetophobia. So if her child is really struggling with this fear, I would rather go like the CBT route, the therapy route, because there's a lot more data to suggest that that's effective. Um, we don't really have any data to tell you neurofeedback is going to help your daughter. What exactly is neurofeedback? So neurofeedback is um, a kind of like connects like some electrodes, almost like you're getting like an EKG or something to your mm -hmm. body. And then what your job is, is to um, you get given stimuli while you're connected to um, this machine. And what your job is to do is to keep um, the very, there's like a, um, and the machine is tracking bodily responses. And as, the, as your body reacts, the machine acts up. And what you're learning how to do with neurofeedback is to calm your body and, and keep the machine from going like this. And so when you see the machine start to identify distress, you then begin to deploy strategies internally to lessen that. And so what it does is it gives you in real-time feedback about what you're doing to bring calm to your body and it teaches you this works, this doesn't work. And so gotcha. you really begin, you get, you get direct in the moment feedback on strategies that can calm you. That's why I'm saying for generalized anxiety, this is more helpful. The problem with emetophobes is that, you know, the triggers for emetophobia vary and neurofeedback does not suggest that it helps you manage those triggers more effectively. We've never seen it work. Yeah. Good answer. I never knew what I, I was. I saw that question and I was very curious what neurofeedback was. So I, I'm glad I, I got it. about neurofeedback, but it's not very well understood. I'm with you. Yeah. Casey. Yeah. It's a weird one. Um, oh, this one, we, we kind of did touch on this, but if you want to go a little deeper on it, are we born with a metaphobia or is it acquired? I guess that was another question I saw in there. I'm going to argue it's born with the vast majority of the time. Do I think people can acquire it? Yes but I'm much more inclined to believe that it's more born with. Um, this is like that nature versus nurture discussion that a lot of people will have. I would bet that most of it's nature um, and then something happens that maybe turns a gene on inside. You get a stressor or something yeah. occurs in life or you reach puberty and then different hormones kick in. And then this part of your biology then becomes activated. I think it's much more likely that it's innate and born with versus acquired. That's not to say that it can't be acquired, but I don't think that that's the dominant path. Yeah. I was going to say too, um, 
my my personal experience with metaphobia like my whole childhood life i it was very negative in my brain and like i didn't like anything about like puking or anything but then as i got older i, I was about 17 when i had experience where i was stuck in a car with somebody that had food poisoning they were driving they were basically throwing up every five minutes out of the car and i was like very very traumatic and then the next day it hit me finally and it just was it was like there's a ton of anxiety hit me all at once. And it was just like, it was like I was hiding from it so long and then it just all came at one time. So that's why I've always told people that I think I just, I I, like, I acquired this at some point, but it definitely, I do remember like very vividly all the negativities as a child, like thinking about this all the time, like, but it just wasn't so prevalent in my head as it is now, but back then I definitely did think about it a lot. So a lot more than most people would, I guess, as a kid. So. Yeah, that highlights, I think, the combo, right? Like there's an mm-hmm. in, there's a born with part of it, but then an experience happened that seemed to like solidify it and worsen it. And that's where like acquisition, I would argue, occurred. But yeah. is it really acquired out of nowhere? Or was there a certain born with that predisposed me to then acquire later? Mm-hmm. Cool. Do you have anything to say on that, Dara? No, I mean, I... I've been in a metaphor for as long as I can remember. So for me, it, it has to be nature. And I grew up in a world where I was the only one seemingly who had a metaphobia. So I certainly didn't learn the behaviors, the avoided behaviors anywhere. So for me, it's so natural. It's so part of me and I couldn't control it. It's just who I am. So that, that it's hard for me to imagine somebody being not a metaphobic and then having an experience that then turned them a metaphobic. It's it's hard for me to grasp that conceptually. I know a lot of people who have had very traumatic vomiting experiences. Like if it happened to me, I think I might have feel like I would want to die. Um, and they're not a metaphobe, you know, so people can have the most terrible experiences and not turn a metaphobic. So for me, that means it, I don't, I'm not a scientist, but it just, for me, it makes it seem like there's something in your brain, like Dr. Yusko said, and maybe that traumatic experience set it off. Um, but how do you just go from not having this problem and then to having it? Um, I think it was always there. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, why do women have a metaphobia over men? It seems. Oh, what a great question. I would, you know, so one of the, when I was in, when Dara introduced me to you, I was like, oh, this is a guy with yeah. a metaphobia. This is rare. Um, and so you're, you're right to, to, to highlight that women are actually significantly um, more likely to have emetophobia um, than men are. And there's literally no explanation again as to why this is the case. I don't know if that has to do with hormonal differences like between genders, whether there's something fundamentally about um, like the, the female gender that makes the out of control experience more frightening and scary, therefore predisposing. I don't know if it's because of like, you know, the, the innateness of um, motherhood and being pregnant and the, you know, like, I have no idea why women are more likely to have this problem than men. One possible thing could be that it's not as true of a gender difference. It's just that women are more likely to talk about it. So that could be one explanation is it's not as genderfied as you might think. But one thing that we do know about genders that's different, women will talk a lot more than men will about being anxious and their mental health. And what if it's more of a reflection of just willingness to talk about it um, versus there being, but I, I do think that more women have it. I also think that more women are willing 
to talk about it and and be front be upfront about it. It's not very manly to go around talking about being afraid of throwing up. And so there's a lot more shame for men to have any kind of anxiety or, or, or mental health issue. Um, so that could also contribute to this gender difference. Um, it's more kind of social socialization. Um, but I don't think that's the only explanation. There does seem to be something about the, the gender that predisposes women more than men. But I don't have an explanation for it. Just to be clear, Dr. Yusko isn't saying that it's not manly to talk about homophobia. <laughs> He's saying that's what society, that's the messaging we get from society. And that's why men probably haven't come forward or answered honestly on questionnaires. And that's um, yeah. so I don't want people to think that you think it's not manly. <laughs> I don't think that it's not manly. I think it's a reflection that like societally, it's not yeah. manly. I actually, that makes a lot of sense. I actually think it's very manly to have the courage to talk about how you feel. Um, Heck yeah more men can do it. Yeah, I, uh, I, I want to say too, as far as the podcast goes, my statistics, 89% women, whatever the other one is men, and then non-binary is 1% of them. So it's, it's like all women, every single, and I'll tell you, my girlfriend too, sometimes we'll be talking about, it, she's like, why are you just talking to girls on your Instagram all the time? I'm like, I'm telling you, it's just the way it is. I'm sorry. It's just, I, that's who's in this world. I, I can't change that. So it's funny, but yeah, it took me eight years just to talk to a counselor about this. So I, I totally understand where, I mean, it took me like four years just to figure out what it was. Cause I, I was just kind of, Oh, whatever. I'll just push it away and see what happens. Just see if I can get over it. And it just never went away. So finally I'm like doing my research. Cause I'm just like, you know, as, as a man, I got to like figure some shit out, you know? And then I finally figure out what it is and I'm just like debilitated. I'm like, how do I have this? Like, this is so weird. And, and it took me so long to be able to even talk about it or say anything. So I get that. I, I definitely think that's what it is. It's just, nobody wants to talk about it. And I've had, I want to say two men now on the podcast and both of them were, were saying about the same thing where they were kind of afraid to talk about it with anybody. So it's just one of those things. It's weird. It's very odd. Yeah. You're right about too, having a name for it. Like we've given a couple of talks and things and like people will be like that, that that's a thing that has a name and like, mm -hmm. or they'd come forward and say, I have that. And they never knew that it was an actual thing. So this is what I deeply appreciate about you and other folks who are kind of promoting this thing, because not only is it a thing and it has a name, but it's a very debilitating thing. Um, yeah. And we can help you. I mm -hmm. know there's help out there. If we can find you, if you're willing to talk about it, we can help you. There is yeah. good help out there. That's why I was really excited to do this podcast because I was like, this is the first time, because I've been trying to push exposure therapy, but everybody comes at me with the whole like, you know, I'm not just going to watch videos of people throwing up. That's just, I'm, I can't, it's, I, I could never do that. That's what they say to me. And I'm like, well, unless you want to like fix it, then that's really where you're at. Nothing in life's easy. You have to do the hard things to be, you know, mentally strong. So I learned that a long time ago because I, I did the same exposure therapy situation, but I just did it on my own terms where I just did it on YouTube, watched it. I, I kind of like looked into it on some blog posts and then took it into my own hands and said, I don't want to, I, I was broke. I don't have health insurance. So I was just like, I don't have enough money to go pay a counselor at the time. So I just did it on my own. And it really, really helped. Like it was the only thing that ever got me over it completely to where I'm, I mean, I'm in public right now, driving around doing my own thing. There's no, I used to not be able to do this. I couldn't leave my house for a couple of years. I couldn't wow. talk to my friends or hang out with people. So it's just, it was the only thing that actually worked for me. So it's insane. That's impressive by the way. Um, exposure therapy is really hard to do on your own. Um, and the fact that you were able to do it that well, 
and, and increase the, 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 the circles of your life, like you should be pretty proud of yourself. I have not met very many people who could have done that on their own. And so when these folks are coming to you and saying, I can't do that, on some level, they're right. And they shouldn't do it by themselves if they can. Like if they yeah. have some resources or if they've got people in their life who are willing to do it with them, I totally agree. This is hard. And I would love to find coaches, support, you know, people to like see you through the process because it is really hard to do alone. And I wouldn't expect somebody to be able, um, they'd just be too scared. Yeah. No, that's what I hear too much is just, I, I could never, that's always the, the answer. I could never do that. And I'm just like, I promise that you can. And like with or without help, it, it is possible. Like you just got to try, you know, that's where I'm at. It's like, it just ask for help. That's really where it's at. You can't just hide away for the rest of your life and just hope it goes away one day. Cause it just won't like, it's just going to get worse. So okay. it's not going to just go away. That's one thing I know and can promise you folks. Once it's there, it'll always be there. All right. Next question here. These are these last few questions here are my own questions. I kind of added some to the end here, but um, what is some advice for women who are pregnant, who have emetophobia and want to have a baby and are very afraid? I'm going to let you give the first stat because <laughs> like you're very familiar with this topic. Yeah. I mean, I, I delayed pregnancy for years because I was fearful of getting sick. Um, I mean, really the advice is just get help. And if you could do 15 sessions of exposure therapy, and I, I just want to sort of address, um, I hate to repeat the advice, but I just want to address what you had said. Um, when you watch videos and do exposures, you're not starting off with really difficult videos. You're starting off really low on the totem pole. For me, it was comedy like South Park and Family Guy, you know, vomit scenes from those. So it's funny, it's animated, it's not realistic. Um, you work your way up. So mm -hmm. you don't, the point of exposure therapy is not to overwhelm you to the point where you feel panicked and upset. It's to let you see that you can be a little slightly uncomfortable, get over that, move to the next level, be slightly uncomfortable, move to the next level. You can go as slowly as you'd like. Um, you just have to be moving in a certain direction. Um, so you're not going to be overwhelmed immediately. And it's, it is hard in the sense that you'd rather be spending your 20 minutes a day on almost anything else, right? <laughs> but the 20 minutes aren't awful. I never got to the point where my SUDS level was like nine and I was panicky and I wanted to pass out or, you know, it was never like that. It's really doable and it's really approachable. And so I think for pregnancy, Number one is the pregnancy that might be fearful, but then another thing is like you're going to have babies and they're going to spit up and then they're going to be toddlers and they're going to be invited to a birthday party where the kids get get sick or they could come home from school one day in elementary school and tell you that someone got sick on the bus and these are the things that as a parent you're going to have to be prepared to deal with so. I, I mean my advice is really just to I, my advice would be do exposure therapy, but try to get some kind of even if you do it on your own like you did just try to train yourself to be ready for it and to be okay with it because yeah. it's going to happen and it's okay. It's so hard, you know, to, um, you know, have this fear and want to have a family because, you know, the, the two things don't mix, they don't play in the sandbox well together, right? Like, you yeah. know, if I'm afraid of vomit, whether it's myself or someone else, 
and the concept of getting pregnant and dealing with morning sickness and all of that. And then this, that's not even when it's over because then you have this little thing around and it's going to be doing what it does, which is kind of getting sick a, a lot. Um, so I, I really do support the idea of um, the best way to try to plan for your family is to try to minimize the severity of the phobia um, one way or another, whether that's maybe medication-based, if you're scared of um, you know, the therapy. Obviously, I'm as a psychologist, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of of the use of cognitive behavior therapy. Um, but I would, I would be trying to reach out there to do something to lessen, to, to, to mitigate the extent that this phobia is standing in the way of something that you want from your life. If there was the, the definition of a disorder, that would be it. I want this, but I can't get to it because this is standing in my way. Functional impairment. Um, and when we're sick, when we have something that's standing in our way, we should treat it. We should try to do something about it. And I would love to try to take some of the shame and the stigma out of having a phobia and getting some help. Yeah. Is there medications um, women can take when they are getting pregnant to kind of combat the morning sickness? Is that suggested or is that something that's kind of out of the, out of the question? I mean, there's definitely... There are things you can do. So my understanding was that the morning sickness, and it's not just in the morning, uh, yeah. <laughs> more, um, it has to do with your hormone levels, like your body just feeling out of whack and too much hormones. Um, but also for me, at least it was when my blood sugar dropped, I felt a little woozy. So I had this saying, ABC, always be chewing. I always had crackers or pretzels or something, which is the only thing in the first three months that I wanted to eat was like mm -hmm. bread type stuff. I just had no, no appetite for vegetables or anything. So I ate a ton of carbs um, those first three months, but as long as I was ABC, always be chewing, um, I felt good just to keep my blood sugar steady all day. When your blood sugar drops, that's when you can start to feel a little woozy and uncomfortable. Also staying hydrated is so important. Um, some people have something called hyperemesis when they're pregnant, and that means they're really sick all the time, and that requires medical intervention. They have to go to the hospital and get IVs and, and, and yeah. more serious drugs. That is so rare. I would never say someone should be fearful of that. It is extremely, extremely rare. Um, for most of us, it's just about keeping our blood sugars steady, getting yeah. just general health advice, like staying hydrated, getting good night's sleep, um, and then always have crackers the things you should be doing regardless if you have a baby yeah like, yeah sure. yeah all right um what is some advice for people wanting to try exposure therapy who are super afraid of it yeah i get that sorry you got that for jumping. please yeah, I get jump in there <laughs> you know it better than me yeah for me it was one of these like last resort things i tried talk therapy and that didn't help me and i really needed to kick this thing because it was making me not be a good parent um, or not being the parent that I want to be or the person I want to be. I was very irritable and like um, anxious. Anxiety to me led to irritability and it was just not sustainable. So, and I also, I was thinking my last two resorts are medication or exposure therapy, um, but I'm scared of medicine as a medical, but I didn't like to take medication because I was worried about side effects. So that was off the table. Um, and I read that exposure therapy could help somebody, a friend of mine said it really helped her with her anxiety, not related to her phobia, a phobia, but anxiety in general. Um, I wish I didn't consider it a last resort. I wish it was one of the first things that popped in my head because I spent a lot of time on a therapist's couch 
talking about my past and nothing changed. Um, so I wish I had found Dr. Yusko sooner in my life because it really would have improved the quality of my life. I would have had more years of happiness and fewer years of anxiety and depression. Um, so I wish I didn't think of it as a last resort, but it was. So I guess my advice is don't look at it as something so terrible. It's really doable, like I said, because you're not going to be overwhelmed. You're going to be in a position where you can control how much of an exposure you want. You can dial it back if that felt a little too much. You're always going to grow. You're always going to go in a good direction, but it's totally doable. Um, so I would say jump in. Um, it's not as scary as you think. And the end of it is going to be amazing. Like think of a course you took maybe. Um, any course you took the first day is hard and it's all these concepts you've never heard of and it feels overwhelming and scary. But then when you're finished the course, you look back at all that you learned um, and it really wasn't so bad. But that first day you felt overwhelmed. So it's normal to feel fearful of it, but I think you have to get over that fear because ultimately it's going to really improve the quality of your life. And again, I just wish I had, I wish I wasn't fearful of it initially. And I wish I had just done it sooner. That's my only regret that I didn't do it sooner. Yeah. To add to, to it, see somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, not every therapist and by far, as a matter of fact, and this is a really sad kind of statement to make is that um, there are all the, the very many of us in my area of work, my profession, really know how to use exposure therapy. And this is um, to the detriment of the people out there who need it, because it's hard to find someone who does it, and even harder to find someone who's good at it. And when you're really scared, you don't want to just put yourself in the hands of like a novice, you know? Um, and one of the great things, if there was anything good that came from COVID, the best thing that came from it was telehealth as a, as a much more utilized way of accessing providers of all kinds, but mental health as well. And so what I would also say is there are some of us, myself, you know, other people who are really good at using this treatment and deploying it. And because we're so skilled with it, we're able to try to help a person get through it without crushing them, without overwhelming them. We're able to create a pace that you can tolerate and handle and improve under. Um, and I think just seeing someone who knows what they're doing is helpful. Like you're a consumer and mm -hmm. I would argue, interview your therapist. People don't think that you're allowed to ask your doctor questions or something like that. But like, yeah. have you ever treated an emetophobe before? How many have you treated? How successful have you been? Like, don't be afraid to really ask your therapist questions because the answers to those questions matter. Um, and for someone who's afraid, like you might only get one shot at it. Because if you go in there, and this therapist doesn't know what they're doing and they screw it up, you may never go back again. Yeah, I want to say something real quick too. I had a, a girl on yesterday from um, Denmark named Freya and she had went to exposure therapy when she was nine years old. And she's like, yeah, they just showed me a bunch of people throwing up a bunch on these screens and it just scared the shit out of me and I never went back. And I'm like, that right there is the problem. Like that's why this doesn't work sometimes for people is because it does overwhelm them. And then they're in a, because they have free healthcare there. So I, 
I'm not saying it's bad, but it's a little bit more like overused than we have here where we kind of have to pay for our stuff and it's a little bit better quality in my opinion. And so, um, I think that she just got really scared and didn't want to go back. And then, so now she still has a metaphobia all these years later, even though she could have probably gotten it taken care of back then when she was nine years old, if she would have done it the right way. So definitely goes to, to show you what can happen. So see somebody who knows what they're doing, you know, and, and that you can trust and that you feel a good connection with. That's the other thing. Like you could have a great provider, but if you don't jive well, if you don't have good kind of rapport connection with them, uh, where we, we are asking you to do things that don't feel good. And when you don't love the, or even like the person you're working with to do the things that they're asking that are hard, it gets even more challenging when there's not as much trust in that system. So the combination, I think of expertise and also good rapport, those that creates the environment where a person can get better. Yeah. I think that can't be overstated, the trust element. Like you, I kind of looked at Dr. Yusko and I as a team and we, we had the same goal, which was getting me out of this, you know, therapy and improving and just graduating, so to speak. Um, but there were times when I felt like I needed to trust, like he was challenging me and saying, I think you can push a little more. And I had to trust because he knew I didn't want to be overwhelmed. And he knows the way I think if I get overwhelmed, I'm done. I'm going to quit mm -hmm. never coming back. So he knew that he also knew that I probably did have room. I needed him to push me a little bit, but I also needed to trust him that he wasn't going to make me feel uncomfortable. So that trust is really important. Um, you want to feel like you're, you're going to be on the same team with this person and they're going to be on your side and they'll know you well enough to know when they can nudge you and when they can just let you chill for a little bit before you go to the next thing. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah. Trust is huge. That's I have to go to a doctor's appointment this next week on the 18th and the first time in like 10 years. So I'm terrified, but I get to meet my new doctor and we'll see how it all goes down. So it's just one of those things. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, what is the success rate of your clients? I can give you success rates kind of globally speaking. I don't know but my like my own uh, success rate, I would like to tell you it's really good. <laughs> sure. Uh, I, I, I believe that it's um, that it's really good. I've been, you know, very, very well educated and trained. I've had, um, you know, leaders in the field be my mentors. And not everybody needs that. But I've been fortunate to, um, to have um, you know, like academic experts be my, uh, my teachers. Um, and so I've cultivated a, 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 a really rich experience level and knowledge base. Um, and that's how my practice has really grown, mostly by word of mouth, because people do get better. I think Dara found me because someone she know worked with me and she got better and suggested to Dara, you may want to try this. And Dara pops in and she's way better than she was when before I met her. Um, so statistically speaking, you know, the, we're in the ballpark of around 80% of people who complete therapy, exposure therapy, are going to see a significant improvement in their life functioning. Yeah. So the vast majority of people who can see me and who can kind of finish the course of treatment are going to improve. Yeah. What would you tell us? 
Sorry, continue. You gave me five? I gave you five stars you. online. Out of five. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Good deal. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, five out of five. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one more quick question, too. Uh, is this is exposure therapy something you can do over like Zoom? Or is this something you have to be in person for? That's a great question. And we actually now have some like kind of scientific data to tell us that the answer to that is yes. Um, so we've treated um, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety. We've had like a handful of studies over the last 10 years, even pre-COVID, we were starting to explore whether or not you can do this via telehealth, mainly because there's not enough trained exposure therapists. So the ability, like let's take Traverse City as an example, right? Like you may not have an exposure therapist in your county. If that's yeah. true, you know, you may have to go to Detroit to potentially find someone, but who's going to drive to Detroit? So telehealth matters. So we began to investigate this, you know, years ago, and we've done studies that have compared telehealth treatment versus in-person treatment, and we're seeing equivocation, meaning they're equal in outcome. So yes, this can absolutely be done via telehealth effectively. That's awesome. That's awesome. No, I, I just wanted to say that because if anybody can come on the podcast and go on Zoom, then you can definitely do this with your counselor. So that's all I got to say for sure. Um, so I'm out of questions, but if there's anything else you guys want to say or any last remarks before we uh, end this one, I, I definitely want to hear what you guys have to say. You know, from I just like, A, want to just say thank you for having this platform and for kind of like doing this and whatever it's spare time, whatever time it is. It's really valuable from a person like me who um, uh, just really advocates for, you know, taking care of a person's mental health, normalizing and destigmatizing these types of issues. There's just can never do enough um, to encourage people to take care of their mental health. Um, and with that, what I would also like people who are listening to know is that help does exist really effective health does exist. This is not something that you have to live with for the rest of your life and just suffer and have no way through or out of. I know it's not easy. I know it's hard. I know the amount of courage it takes to make a phone call and begin to look, but we can help you and you can get better. You don't have to live with this for the rest of your life. Um, so if you can find a way to make that call, I would just love to encourage people to take that, take that risk, give yourself a chance to feel better. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I really do. This, this has been like one of the best platforms I've ever had in my life to like help people out. And it's just, it feels like I can actually speak again and people listen to me and I feel validated. And it's just like, you know, because for so long, everybody's just kind of brush it off. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. I get it. You know, nobody likes to be sick, whatever, get away from me. But now it's like, I can finally talk to all of like my friends on, on this Instagram and on the uh, podcast. And it's just nice to have people who understand what I'm saying. So it's awesome. Anything you want to say there before we go? No, I just said, um, I admire your listeners for exploring this and exploring the possibility of exposure therapy and getting help and, you're not alone um, and you can make your life more enjoyable. Like I think for me, I spent so much of my energy being scared of something that you just really can't avoid in life. 
you know, you can't avoid it in movies. And if you have kids, you can't avoid them getting sick. And um, so much of my energy and it's like negative energy. And now that I don't spend energy on my phobia, I have energy for other things. And my life has been so substantially improved. So I get where your listeners are. And I just, I hope that they can find the inner strength to just take some next steps and, um, and get help because there's really a wonderful world on the other side of emetophobia. Good deal. Where can we find both of you? Online, at least. <laughs> oh, I, I'm so sorry. I should have turned my phone off. Uh, I'm at, I'm at uh, on Instagram, Dara Lovett's Books. And uh, we wrote a book, Gag Reflections, which I think you're going to talk about maybe after you finish reading it. Um, it's yes. Gag Reflections, Conquering a Fear of Vomit Through Exposure Therapy. And um, it's sort of my memoir. It's, it's really designed for both therapists and patients. So it's designed for emetophobes because they're going to read about my story. They're going to feel validated when they read some of my embarrassing stories. Um, mm -hmm. And it'll show my journey and how I, what I did in order to become a recovered emetophobe. And then Dr. Yusko's portion of the book is the science, the history behind the therapy, why exposure therapy is the gold standard treatment for emetophobia. Um, so that's a book that we, we hope your listeners will, will think about reading. Awesome. Do you want to you? Um, I think I have an Instagram that's Dr. David Yusko. That's, so that's one way to find me, but center for anxiety and behavior therapy, um, is our, is our, um, uh, our company and, uh, center is our website. Um, so that's, that's, that's a great way to also find us email us. We're here. I know would love to, you know, field any questions people have, you know, help people access treatment. Like we are definitely open for business and willing to help people find care. Not because you can come here to see us per se, but we can help you find people where you live because we just know a lot of folks that do exposure therapy. Um, so even if you can't find it, give us a call. Let us help you find where you get help. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. This was like, I've been waiting for this all week. I've been so excited about this one. So it's really, really cool. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Casey. Have a great weekend. Awesome. Thanks for yeah, you us. guys too. Have a good one. Enjoy. Bye. Bye. What a great podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. This was a really, really important one for me. Um, you can definitely tell that I, I wanted to get this one out for a while now. I've been really pushing this one as hard as I can. So it's a very important one. And I, I'm, I'm really glad to be able to bring this together with uh, David and uh, Dara. So you can find uh, Dara over on Instagram at D-A-R-A-L-O-V-I-T-Z books. So Dara Lovitz books. And you can find Dr. David over at dr.davidusko, Y-U-S-K-O. Um, and then also his website, you can find him at is www.centerabt.com. Um, like he said in the podcast, he can definitely help you out if you're looking for a um, exposure therapist in your area or he may be able to help you out himself. So um, we did talk about how this could be done over Zoom. So that's always an option. So just uh, make sure if, if, if you really have questions about this or you want to talk about this with somebody, um, go find him on this website or just hit him up on Instagram or wherever you can find him. So um, again, this was a very, very important podcast. I'm really, really glad to be able to bring it to you guys. Thank you for all the support. Please go down below, rate and subscribe and leave me a review if you liked it. And you can always find me over on Instagram at the Emetophobia Podcast or on my email at the Podcast at gmail.com. We will see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening.